Good evening and welcome to Mouthful Smart Talk about food, wine, and farming in Sonoma County and beyond here on KRCB-FM. Thanks for tuning in. Tonight we talk garlic, one of my favorite subjects for a very long time. Um, And we have one special guest for the evening. It is John Harris. And let me just set this up a little bit. You know how people sometimes ask you to make a list of the 10 books that changed your life, the 10 albums that changed your life, that sort of thing? I was thinking about this as I was driving to the studio, and I thought, you know, the Book of Garlic belongs at the top of the list of the books that changed my life. I found it in the mid-1970s, right, or maybe even a little bit late, maybe about 1978. It was a time when New West Magazine was doing some really pretty phenomenal coverage and they did an issue where they had photographs of garlic on a black you know like a a clove um a bulb on a black background and they were absolutely gorgeous they just took my breath away and it was shortly after that that I found the book of garlic and a while after that that I became a member of lovers of the stinking rose all of those things happened before one day I was in St. Helena, a very hot day, attending one of the first olive oil presentations and tastings that we had here in Northern California. And I was standing there tasting some olive oil. There was a man across the table from me who made some sort of crack that made it made me laugh. And that was John Harris. And we formed a friendship from there. He, uh, We went out for... Um, dessert after this, and he invited me to be in a book he was working on, um, California Women Chefs. And in a certain way, the rest is history. He published my first few books, and we've been friends in garlic and many other things since then, including MFK Fisher. Um, He took me to MFK Fisher's house shortly after I finished my first manuscript because we wanted her to read it, which she did. And on that, welcome back to Mouthful, John. Hey, I'm I'm amazed at your introduction, um, flattered and surprised that I made your, not only your top 10, but the first of your top ten. Well, now think- that's really extraordinary. Well, I was thinking about what is what has really shaped me as a cook and as a writer. And I thought it's like that book did so much for me. Long before I met you, when I was working as a chef, you know, I came up with my rid- sort of ridiculous um, roasted garlic meatballs. And I still remember sitting at the table in my kitchen until about two or three in the morning. I had roasted many heads of garlic. And I sat there, and you know how hard it is to peel garlic once it's been roasted because it's so soft. I sat there and separate, peeled out each little clove and formed a meatball around it. I made 750 of them. <laughs> I have to well, say. First of all, I, I, have to, I have to interject um, nomenclature issue here because 
one doesn't peel roasted garlic. One one squeezes roasted garlic. Does it? Or you wanted to I maintain need... the integrity? Exactly. Of the soft I get it. I get it. Yes, and later, because what I wanted, I wanted when people bit into that, I wanted that luscious burst of creamy roasted garlic in the center, rather than having it, you know, mixed in with the beetball mixture. I don't think I've ever done that again. I think. After sort that. of like a custard. Exactly. A cust- exactly. A custard-filled, um, you know, puff pastry. Exactly. And after that, I think I just started incorporating it into the mix of the meatballs because it really is ridiculously time-consuming. Right. Um, well, that's of- a good idea, though. That you know, if you if you had roasted it until it's um, cooked, but not but not a paste, you could probably shape the meat around it and it stays intact and it probably has a, a slightly bigger kick to it when you would bite into it. Yeah, but I think you're right. You know, yeah. But, you know, your meatball f- a fetish, which approximates my garlic fetish, um, was also a wonderful connection between us because when you did your meatball book, I, I loved the process of writing about for your introduction. Yes, I, you did I the loved introduction. introducing the book because it, it brought back to me my history with the book uh, Mythology and Meatballs, which we published, Daniel Sporey's um, opus about uh, living on a little Greek island. And, um, you know, and his fetish, with meat- his fetish with meatballs, I thought was brilliant. When- and it was an inspiration for me. It was on my top ten list. Oh, interesting. His book about um, the island of Simi, which was a very garlicky place, but it was, for him, all about meatballs. And that was the inspiration for me to write a book about garlic, really, because I saw that you could focus on one small little gastronomic element and turn it into a whole book, which people thought I was crazy for trying to do back in the early 70s. They said, how can you write a whole book about garlic? And that was my um, sort of, you know, my uh, dare that I, that I accepted, and, and, and vowed to write a 300-page book about garlic. And uh, it actually came in, I think, at 278 pages. Actually, the first edition is 247 pages, and the second edition is 286 pages. Okay. So How it, many? 286? 286. And then okay. if you add the uh, Lovers of the Stinking Rose, uh, which comes in at 116 pages, you've more than made your contribution and proved every all of the naysayers incorrect. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, speaking I've my, gar- my garlic uh, 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 badges. Oh, you definitely, um, your garlic, oh, you, your garlic uh, crown. You know, which now you remember me seen. as John Harris, and you know I wrote the book of garlic as Lloyd J. Harris. Right. But now professionally, I'm L. John Harris, and so if if anyone's ever interested in me after this um, after this uh, conversation, they won't find me under John Harris. They would only find me under L. John Harris, and then they would see the the whole crazy story that that followed garlic, because really garlic was my beginning. Um, into the world of food writing, um, you know, becoming a, char- a character, so to speak, and certainly, uh, you know, a kind of a uh, card-carrying Berkeley gourmet ghetto uh, resident. 
Yes, no, um, in college you studied art. An activist, oh. and kind of an activist. Gar- you know, my, garlic my activist. garlic thing was really a par- uh, in a certain way it was like what I call a cloven cheek parody <laughs> of the food revolution, which we, we didn't really realize what we were doing here in Berkeley in California in the 70s. We just thought we were having a great time with food and discovering, you know, how to make great food and discovering how to, you know, find great products. And, you know, we were basically trying to live a European lifestyle in California, which is, of course, very doable, but nobody had ever thought of it that way. And so for me, garlic was really the entry, my kind of, um, you know, as I am by nature, kind of... um, uh, somewhat skeptical, or, or, or I guess that's a word, about revolutions in general, because I know that they always turn out to be um, failures in a certain basic sense. You know, we, you know, in Berkeley, things are so political, and there's so much utopian um, um, fantasy about what what can happen. And of course, in the '60s, a lot of it did happen. So we were both, you know, I felt like I was both a child of the revolution, but also a bit of a doubting Thomas. So the the garlic thing was like almost like my, I hope I'm not ranting on here too much, but garlic was really a way that I could express the kind of dual um, part of my nature. And garlic is very good at reflecting, you know, lots of social issue, social political issues, because it really is a food that is associated with, you know, peasant culture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were trying to kind of recreate that in our California back-to-the-land movement, and garlic was a perfect vehicle for that. Mm-hmm. And so many people today, they don't realize what garlic was available at the time you wrote this book. I remember trying to find garlic in grocery stores, and you could usually get it in a little, I think it was a little yellow cardboard package with cellophane and two yes. and two small cloves. There yes. were no mounds of garlic. There was no choice. It was all California white. And most home cooks really used garlic powder and garlic salt. I never saw fresh garlic in my mother's house until I went out and got it. So you really did, even though you say you're a doubting Thomas, you ushered in a garlic revolution that changed cooking throughout America. Well, you know, yeah, maybe. Um, I I accept. But you know, as you know well, um, all of California garlic production was geared towards um, the uh, dehydration business mm-hmm. uh, down in you know the uh, down in Gilroy area. And so, when I started to look into garlic production in California, um, uh, I I met with um, I met with in, you know in industry people, you know people that were involved in they weren't growers per se. You know, I met with people that were taking the raw product and and turning it into toothpaste, uh, (laughs) anti-toothpaste products. Um, You know, things like um, mayonnaise, ketchup. Um, And it brought up the issue of the the whole sort of um, um, industry around uh, bad breath. And I remember the day... Uh, and garlic breath being identified by the mouthwash industry as the worst bad breath in America. That's literally how they promoted their products. Really? And I remember the day I received by chance in the mail a promotional 
bottle of um, Signal mouthwash, and it was introducing a new product, and it promoted the idea that the product would would fight against the worst bad breath in America, uh, garlic, and I think they added onions on top of that. Of course, we know the relationship between garlic and onions. So it's like garlic is onions on steroids. Um, but I received that bottle and thought, I'm not going to let this stand. So I wrote a letter to the um, Lever Brothers company, just, you know, winging it and proclaiming their product, you know, an assault on good taste, an assault on the, on the virtues of garlic, and um, that we, lovers of the Stinking Rose, were going to launch a national campaign to uh, reverse the, the, uh, prom- the propaganda around their product. And I got back a letter, you know, within a week or two saying, you know, Mr. Harris, we loved your letter. <laughs> we would love you to come debate our chemist at, our, at a studio in New York City. And that was a whole adventure around garlic that I would, I would love to tell that story in detail and will one of these days. Can you do it they now? Really, they, they wanted to send me around the country. Really? Uh, yes. They, they, they brought me to New York and they said it was so successful. We were on a local television show with a guy named Chauncey Howell, I think his name was, very popular TV guy in New York City. And I met with a chemist and we debated garlic and you know how, in my in my view, it was impossible to eradicate uh, garlic breath by um, by taking a mouthwash because it's so persistent and it comes out your pores. I said you'd have to take a bath in garlic. <laughs> I mean, a bath, a bath in and mouthwash. Mouth. Yeah, and and that, that actually le- led to a, a proposal at some point that I was going to actually do that. But they wanted to send me around the country, but they wanted to pay for my, all my expenses and kind of control the thing and really turn it into, you know, more propaganda for their mouthwash. And so I, I got advice from somebody in Berkeley, uh, one of my radical political friends, who said, don't take their money. Tell them you'll pay for your own expenses and, you know, turn this into a real debate. And they, of course, dropped me like a, like a hot potato. Of course. And you know, that attitude, if you notice in certain um, television commercials, that attitude still persists. I see it in um, advertisements for garlic. Um, So you can take, you know, garlic oil pills or something, and they say it doesn't have any of the taste and it doesn't give you bad breath. They call it odorless garlic. And it was, um, it's a, I think it's a Japanese product. The Japanese were really into garlic as a, as a remedy, as a health remedy, mm-hmm. and I give them a lot of credit for that, uh, you know, whether it's valid or not. Uh, there's a lot of conflicting uh, scientific uh, evidence, you know, for the, for the uh, efficacy of garlic in various illnesses. But they had developed this very sophisticated machine that would essentially give you a shower of garlic um, in their laboratory in Japan, and it was called, um, I, I forget what it was called, but these people were very excited about my book, and uh, I think they actually helped to get my book translated into Japanese, one of, one of the four languages that it was translated into. I think it was called the Oyama Garlic Laboratory, and um, they developed products 
you know, uh, aside from their uh, technology, their shower technology, they had something called um, Kyolic. And Kyolic, I think, is the base, is, you know, the precursor to, to uh, garlic. I think, you know, you can see that the garlic name is an attempt to give a kind of Frenchy spin uh-huh, to, right. uh, to, gar- to the product. Yes. Yeah. And that's really interesting. What were the other languages that the book was translated? Uh, it was Spanish, uh, German. The German title for the book of garlic was Nicht, Nicht Vergegen Vampires. <laughs> In other words, not only for vampires, which I thought was hysterical. Of course, I couldn't read what they, you know, I couldn't read German, so I didn't know what they actually did with the text. But, sure. Um, also, so it was uh, uh, Spanish, French. Oh, good, French, Japanese, yes, absolutely. And German. Excellent. The French edition was very, was uh, an adventure, too, because it was the first, and it happened at the end of the 70s. So the book came out in 74, and I think the French edition came out in the late 70s, and when I, uh, a small publisher had bought it. Now, the French and in Europe in general, they weren't into the single-subject cookbooks that we were into. As you know, my, my time with Eris Books, publishing cookbooks, was all about single-subject cookbooks. So you could take any subject, um, you know, whether it be garlic or uh, olive oil, um, Filo dough. you know, whatever it is, vinegar, and you can turn it into a whole book. It mm-hmm. was sort of like that impulse that I had to turn garlic into a whole book was extended to every imaginable ingredient in the 1970s and 80s. And um, uh, so where was I? <laughs> <laughs> you were talking about uh, when the book was published in France. Oh, yeah, yeah, in French. So when I heard, so they, we found a, fr- a small French publisher, uh, a lot like, you know, I was, you know, a small press in, in Paris, and they published the book of garlic uh, called Lye, which is the French word for garlic. And... Uh, it the the press immediately went bankrupt, not because of my book, but, but maybe because of all the books they were publishing, like my book. Um, but they went bankrupt, and I never got a penny from it. But I did get a trip to to Paris. Nice. Did you get a, and, some copies of the book? And got copies of the first copies of the book, mm-hmm. and spent my whole time in Paris, um, reading my book in French. And you know, I was always trying to learn French. So this was an opportunity to to read my words in French, and I had pictures taken by my then girlfriend uh, on park benches in every fancy garden in Paris, in front of every monument, with a book of gar- a book the the lie book open in front of me. So it's like my whole experience of Paris was really my own book, um, and uh, it was quite exciting. I have to tell you. I mean, I think it was more or less wasted on on me in a way because it was you know i it was my first book and i was in my 20s and here i am you know sitting in paris with my book in french i you know i i think i peaked too early <laughs> well it, it's it's really interesting it's something else we share i've been a francophile most of my life and it's another connection that we both have to mfk fisher you know who is yes, very very you much gonna, connected. You were going to um, read something? No, of, what of... we're going to do, and we can do that now. I think yeah. I'll, I'll look at Anthony. Yes, we're ready to go. We're going to play um, what you recorded for us a few weeks ago, and then okay. you're going to talk about it. So here we go. Okay. 
When I lived in Aix-en-Provence, a grand aioli was considered a pretty devastating festival, gastrically at least. And this wine and that one would be recommended to offset its rigors. And often serious students of regional cooking would interrupt their research in the middle of a meal for a quick, salubrious toss-down of local mark. In general, though, the main menace in an overindulgence in the sauce rather than in all its accompaniments. And if one is psychosomatically ill-adjusted to a plain, robust meal accompanied firmly by the flavor of garlic, the whole thing should be tucked into gastronomical Siberia. From the downward path with bold knife and fork, and this is L. John Harris, publisher, artist, and writer for Mouthful on KRCB-FM. Okay. You have a... What is the moment? What is, tell us about garlic and Siberia. Well, you know, when you sent me the list of, of MFK Fisher quotes to consider for your program, and I came across this one on garlic, I said to myself, of course, you know, about garlic. Uh, perfect. And then I read it all the way through, and at the end, she she tucks she tucks uh, 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 the sauce into gastronomic Siberia, and I I laughed doubly loud because Siberia is actually the home, the original home of cultivated garlic. Um, there's a part of Siberia, you know, and all of this is kind of uh, geographically vague to me, but. Um, there's a there's there's a part of Siberia called the Kyrgyz Desert region, and there's a people called the I think they're called the Kyrgyz people, and that's where garlic was first naturalized from a wild plant into a cultivated plant. So I thought it was ironic and hysterical because I don't think MFK Fisher knew that. No, I'm, I'm sure she did not. Because you wouldn't tuck you wouldn't tuck garlic into the into kind of a purgatory in Siberia uh, if you had known that it actually is from Siberia. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was really very funny, and um, and knew that that was you know the, obviously the quote. But you know the bigger the bigger story though is for me is that you know even in just that paragraph reading M. F. K. Fisher's prose. You know, she was she was very old school in a certain way. You know, even though she was a very modern woman, her writing style was, you know, very formal. And so she talked about psychosomatically, you know, inappropriate um, with for garlic or something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, she she had a way with words that I thought was very rich and embellished, very almost florid sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and very tech. Very. I've always thought of her as very textured. Yes, and ve- and yes. very sensual. You know, she really yes. pulls in the senses in her writing. Yes. You can tell she's she's uh, her while she's writing. You can just feel how she's going through the f- almost physical relationship to her subject. Absolutely. Well, we're going to take a quick musical break. Of course, it will be a garlic song, and we're going to come back. And I want to talk about um, the garlic festivals that you, at least in part, right. helped launch. Yeah. Some rope, but she 
the garlic blues. Have you heard that before, John? Oh, maybe. I think so. <laughs> okay, cool. So you, the Book of Garlic was first published in 1974. Right. And Chez Panisse had started in, what, 1971, I think. Yes. And then their garlic festival came along like three or four years after the book came out? Uh, two years, I think. Two um, years. I had, you know, as you know, I had been uh, a waiter there because mm-hmm. I had worked at the cheese board. And when Chez Panisse opened, uh, Alice Waters invited, you know, everybody she knew to come help at the restaurant. I think there were like five times more people working at the restaurant on opening night than there were than there were uh, visitors or guests. Um, and, you know, I was there for the first week only, but um, you know, I was at that time trying to be a writer, and Chez Panisse, you know, opened as a Provençal, kind of a Provençal bistro, and of course, it was very garlic-heavy, and, you know, I I grew up loving garlic, frankly. My mother loved garlic, and so um, it, was not a, it was not a stretch for me to start thinking about writing about garlic. I was writing about other alternative medical things as a journalist, and so the subject of writing about garlic, you know, came up very naturally. And, um, and then uh, as soon as the Book of Garlic came out, you know, and Alice, you know, was, you know, a friend and a fan, and um, she, um, she agreed to turn her Bastille Day garlic, her first Bastille Day garlic dinner, into a garlic-themed dinner. So we kind of collaborated on that. And Lover of the Stinking Rose got involved, uh, you know, with, with some of the menu as well, because I remember marinating uh, garlic, raw garlic in honey, whole cloves of garlic in honey, and then after letting that, you know, steep for several days, uh, pouring the honey over vanilla ice cream and serving that at, at, at the garlic festival at Chez Panisse. I had that so, at Chez Panisse. You know, I remember that There was that a natural, dish. you know, obviously a natural affinity between... Uh, mm-hmm my garlic addiction and Chez Panisse's, um, uh, you know, Francophilia and Provençal orientation. And that, that festival continued. Um, I sort and of still does uh, until this year. Until this um, year, yeah. You know, it's been going ever since 1976. Um, I went to the first 25 and would always have a table, you mm-hmm. know, and, and invite friends and celebrate uh, and then I started to go to Paris in July and miss the next several, maybe the next 10 years' worth of, of uh, you know, Bastille Day garlic dinners. Mm-hmm. And, to, and this year was supposed to have been the huge reunion. Oh. So painful. This was, okay, last year at Gilroy, speaking of garlic festivals, last year was the, um, the you know, the terrible... Killings at, at right. the Gilroy Garlic yeah, Festival. Yeah, the shootings. And uh, I was so upset about that, regardless of my feelings about Gilroy, and we can get into that, but um, I was so sickened by that that, you know, I contacted, I contacted Alice and said, let's make next year's Bastille Day uh, a tribute to Gilroy and hope that they can open safely. And let's also celebrate the anniversary of, uh, you know, the Bastille Day garlic dinners, which I think 45 years, um, yeah, in 21, it'll be 45 years for the garlic festival. Uh, it'll be, you know, 40 
you know, eight years for the Book of Garlic. It'll be, you know, 40 years from Les Blank's uh, film Garlic is as good as Ten Mothers. Let's just celebrate garlic and all of its, um, you know, manifestations and uh, make it into a big, you know, a big deal. And we, and we were going to do that. And then, of course, you know, COVID uh, spoiled everything. Right. Well, maybe, so now, next, maybe next year. Well, yeah, I mean, Gilroy is supposed to do their garlic festival next year, and mm-hmm. hopefully Chez Panisse and everybody will be back to some sense of normal, mm-hmm. and we can eat in restaurants together again, and yeah. or even outdoors, if, if that's the case, yeah. and have a celebration. Now you were but in... I do oh. think that um, I'm ready to celebrate uh, something, yeah. and garlic, you know, why not? You know, garlic has been a, a talisman for my entire life, and, uh, you know, it, it's fun to uh, get back into the spirit of it. Absolutely. Um, you were instrumental, weren't you, initially with the Gilroy Garlic Festival? Yeah, I think, well, I think, you know, although I didn't, you know, participate in the actual uh, creation of the festival, they got the idea from from my book. You know, I was going down there as this young, you know, sort of, um, they thought of me as some sort of, hippie foodie, it was the word foodie hadn't been created yet, but, you know, a hippie food guy from Berkeley into garlic, you know, and they, they were, not, as we said earlier, they were into, into dehydrated garlic as a big industry, um, you know, thing, and um, fresh garlic was something that they didn't get, you know, they didn't really care about it, and, it, and as you know, it was hard to get fresh garlic. Absolutely. So I think they saw the handwriting on the wall and started to uh, cultivate me and invite me down more and include me in a planning session with the town fathers of Gilroy to plan the first Gilroy Garlic Festival. So, you know, I think I was, you know, some sort of a spiritual advisor. Uh, and God, had a booth Godfather the of Garlic. There we go. <laughs> huh? I said Godfather of Garlic. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> and so they, they honored me and, and gave me a free booth. You know, I didn't have to pay to have a booth, mm-hmm. and uh, I, you know, there's wonderful pictures of me and my my garlic uh, uh, friends, uh, you know, hawking uh, the book of garlic. You know, there were no other books of garlic. There were no other, you know, books of any kind having to do with garlic, and so I was hawking my book and selling bumper stickers and Garlic Times newsletters, and I was wearing my ceremonial garlic turban and it who, was you know who made that garlic turban it really was a lot of fun who made the that garlic turban year. for you huh who made the garlic turban the garlic turban was made by the woman that um that became my wife oh, and accompanied okay. me to paris when the book came out and she was uh, you know a kind of amateur seamstress and we had this idea to make a garlic uh, chef's hat shaped in the form of a garlic bulb with cloves that could separate. Huh? With cloves that you could... That garlic <laughs> chef's hat is wonderful. Do you still yeah, have... I, I do you have it? I think some museum, local museum sometime, like the Berkeley History Museum or something, they're doing actually a big show. They're going to have a big exhibit on Berkeley food history. Uh, it's re- They were going to open it, you know, be a public event in their headquarters. They can't do that, so it's going to be an online exhibition. But I thought that the, they, I think they might want to display the garlic hat as a kind of relic of the early days of the food revolution and Definitely. the garlic revolution. Definitely. Um, but anyway, you open up each individual clove, 
and it snaps in place at the top of your head, and then you open up a clove, and it flops down. It becomes like a clown, very clownish. And, and then I reach into the hat where there's fresh garlic cloves, and I throw them at people, you know, if I'm, like, <laughs> in a garlic parade. And there were garlic parades. I don't know if you remember the doodah parade in Los Angeles. Oh, that definitely. Was an offshoot of, of the Lovers of the Stinking Rose in L.A., led by a guy named Charles Perry, a food writer. Yes. Who became quite successful with the L.A. Times. And he, uh, he would do garlic. He would sponsor, help sponsor garlic festivals in Los Angeles, which I would go down to. And he had something called the Doodah Parade. And he would, uh, that was something that would, was in Pasadena, I believe. Mm-hmm. He had a garlic float. And he would be sitting on the garlic float, the garlic-themed float, uh, going down the street and throwing garlic cloves at the crowds that, you know, line the streets. So that's, you know, that, that was, you know, kind of wild times, Abs- wild times. Absolutely. One of the other wild and wonderful things to come out of that time was, of course, the Les Blanks movie, Garlic is as Good as Ten Mothers. And I want right. to play something for you, and on the other side, we'll talk about it. Okay. Since biblical times in all parts of the earth, it has cured countless sufferings and ills. If we understood what the garlic is worth, we would throw out our poisonous pills. In Bulgaria's mountains and Russia's wide plains, people live to a hundred years old. For it's juice of the garlic that runs in their veins. Oh, it's worth twice its weight in pure gold. With psyllium, germanium, allicin too, it can fight off all types of disease. So if you've got arthritis, TB, or the flu, just say, peel me a garlic clove, please. Plant some cloves in your garden to keep away worms and the other bad things that kill plants. If you're one of those people concerned about germs, you could drop one or two in your pants. There are spices and vegetables that you can grow. Some are under the ground, some grow tall. Though they all have their qualities, this you should know, that the garlic is best of them all. Recognize that? It's from the movie. Oh, God. <laughs> Fantastic. I, I should have gotten uh, a liner credit on that song because I think they got all of their medical uh, imagery from my book. From my book. <laughs> I'm I, sure I they mean, did. Who has ever heard of um, germanium? I mean, that, that was in my book. That was some you know, essence from back in the medieval times that... that uh, that uh, was touted as a cure-all of some sort, and that's one of the elements in garlic. There's so many elements in garlic that have been uh, attributed with, you know, curative qualities. Mm-hmm. But boy, that song, that takes me back. I bet. That takes me back. That's fabulous. Now, you were in the movie, in, in several scenes of the movie. Um, yeah. What- well, I remember the day I got a postcard from Les Blank. I didn't know him. But he evidently had been hanging out in Berkeley. Uh, you know, he was you know quite famous for already for his musical films, mm-hmm. music films, and so he uh, was hanging around Chez Panisse and had this uh, idea from my book to to do a film about garlic. 
I think he was at the first um, uh, Bastille Day, uh, you know, garlic dinner at Chez Penny's. And so I got a postcard from him from New Orleans, which was, in, you know, his main hang place for most of a lot of his films, at least. So I got a postcard from him saying, you know, I would love to do a film about garlic. And uh, I wrote him back and said, anytime. So he started making the film at Chez Panisse in the, in the, uh, the next garlic festival, I believe. So that was 77. And then we all went down to Gilroy together and opened, you know, my first, the first booth. And he did a lot of uh, camera work, I think, at the first or second Gilroy Garlic Festival. But by the time his film came out, here's a funny story. By the time his film came out in 1980, they would not let him show it in the town of Gilroy. And the reason is because there is a scene in the film where Cesar Chavez, uh, uh, the symbol for the Farm Workers Union, is displayed in the film over a scene of, of, of farm workers uh, harvesting garlic. And the Gilroy Garlic Festival was, of course, having a dispute with the farm workers. And there was a strike at the time, and they would not let the film be shown in the town of Gilroy. And that's when we decided not to have a booth there in the future because of obvious you know, political issues with, with the town fathers of Gilroy. Interesting. So I have not been to Gilroy since the second garlic, uh, Gilroy Garlic Festival. They did have a 25th anniversary of the Gilroy Garlic Festival and invited me to attend, and I declined. Um, but today I would go, because after that slaughter, the terrible thing that happened yes. last year, I, yes. I, I thought maybe I should hire a bus, like a Greyhound bus, and take you know a, a bus full of garlic freaks down to Gilroy to show solidarity with Gilroy. What a sweet idea. Yeah. Um, the, film had, the film had some controversy to it. There was a restaurant, if I recall, it was in Truckee, Ma Maison. Yeah, no, La Vieille Maison. La Vieille Maison. And, and it was um, a woman, I believe, was reclining nude, face down on the bar, getting a massage, I believe, with aioli. And well, some people know, was, didn't like that. This was a notorious moment in the garlic revolution where sexuality actually entered into uh, the food world in, a, in an overt way. And uh, yes, it's considered controversial. Uh, I think it's still in the film. Yes. But the way it goes is that we went down there to film at La Vieille Maison because the owner, Robert Charles, a uh, notorious womanizing Frenchman, uh, very gallant, a brilliant chef from France, uh, had run an important restaurant in San Francisco in the, six, in the 50s, uh, moved to Gilroy with his wife, Amora, named, uh, that was her, her nickname based on French mustard, the Amora brand mustard, mm, which mm-hmm. I don't believe you can get in, in the United States even today. Um, but people bring it back from Paris. And he launched a restaurant with a garlic theme uh, inspired by the book, and he invited me down and uh, fested me with, or fetted me, with uh, a recipe on the menu called Soup Lloyd J. Harris, which was a garlic version of soup à l'oignon. And it was basically pureed, roasted pureed garlic in a chicken stock, you know, with... 
um, croutons. It was fabulous. And so we went down uh, with a group, including Les Blank and a crew, and uh, Ruth Reichel was, was, I think the article that you read by her in New West Magazine mm-hmm. was based in that, at that time, uh, and that was one of the things she wrote about. So we all went down there, and, and Bruce Adels, who was then um, working at uh, Poulet in, the, in Berkeley's Gourmet Ghetto, Bruce Adels of Adele Sausage was a high school friend of mine, and I helped get him the job at Poulet with my friend Marilyn Rinsler, the chicken lady. Mm-hmm. So we all went down there, and it was, I think, Bruce's idea to make aioli and rub it on this young waitress, and to call her a woman, I think, is a stretch. She was a girl, and she, and she was willing to do it. And I, I have to look at the film again just to make sure that scene is still in there. But that's the scene. That's the scene. There's so Today, many wonderful scenes in a movie. In today's world, that would be, I guess, considered inappropriate. Yeah, probably. I had nothing to do with it. I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> I just witnessed it. <laughs> it. It was a wonderful movie. And if I'm, I might be wrong on this, but I might not. I think some of the footage that didn't make it into the movie might have later made it into Werner Herzog Eats His Shoe which was a film short, 20 minutes. Yes. yes. And I know that he cooked his desert boot in duck stock and a whole lot of garlic in the kitchen at Chez Panisse. And one of the stories is that it smelled so bad that they had to close <laughs> the restaurant that day. Huh. Oh, that's funny. It, it was, well, they're both, they're wonderful movies. Really. That's not a very flattering comment on Warner Herzog's well, it but, wasn't um, his fault. It was, I think it was the, um, I don't know the right name for that kind of sole. It was a desert boot, and it has ah. that sort of rubbery sole that probably uh, was releasing a lot of um, chemicals. I think that's the reason for the aroma. You would think that with enough garlic, it would have masked it, but I guess, you know. Apparently, it didn't. But it's a, <laughs> it's a great um, movie, and we've shown that up here. I think we've done two or three Les Blank film festivals up here. We were really yeah. lucky to have Les at them, and there was a, a little French uh, bistro in Healdsburg, and after one of the festivals, we had a sit-down garlic dinner um, celebrating Les, and he, he was there for the dinner, and I think you were out of the country, so you weren't here. Um, we don't have a lot of time left, and there is something we absolutely must talk about because in Sonoma County, certainly, um, garlic is always associated with the late Chester Aaron, who passed away last uh, late last April. Um, he was your roommate for a while, and I believe you were the one who introduced him to garlic. Well, no, I did introduce Chester to garlic because he grew up with garlic. Oh, being, okay. I think he was the only Jew... Jewish family in a small Pittsburgh town, and um, that really figured in his first novel. He was a serious novelist. His first his first novel was was widely uh, accepted and and well reviewed. Um, but he then lived on land uh, in Bodega Bay and then in Sebastopol, and but he was teaching at St. Mary's College as an English professor when he was introduced to me by his girlfriend, who was a fellow cheese boarder of mine. And we became very good friends. 
uh, around literary issues, not around garlic, although he, appreciated, he, loved, he loved the garlic book and all of that. Uh, but he wasn't yet a garlic grower until he moved, and he lived in my home as a, as a kind of um, um, pied-a-terre when he was teaching at St. Mary's College. He would drive in from um, Bodega Bay and teach at St. Mary's and then stop in Berkeley, stay at my house overnight, and then go home the next day because mm-hmm. it was a long ride. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, when he started growing garlic, um, you know, he, he started to write about it, of course, and um, wrote many fine books about growing garlic. He was sort of like the other side. He was like the complementary uh, person to me in terms of taking over. When I, when I retired from the garlic world, he became mis- the new Mr. Garlic, but more from a horticultural standpoint. Mm-hmm. And I, I need to go back and, and meet people again, because I do intend to write about garlic for my new book, which I want to plug now before it's too late. Yes, a new book. Please tell yeah, us. Well, the book I'm working on is the history of the Berkeley food uh, revolution and food movement in its capacity as a kind of precursor to the California cuisine revolution, which became a much bigger thing and, and traveled you know, nationally. But it really all started in Berkeley mm-hmm. in, in, you know, in around 1970. Uh, Pete's Coffee, uh, followed by the Cheese Board, followed by Chez Panisse, followed by you know, the charcuterie, followed by Cocolat, Alice Mitrich's chocolate shop, mm-hmm. and on and on it goes, the chicken, sh- the chicken uh, poulet shop. Um, so I'm writing about the history, and of course there'll be a big section on garlic in, this, in the new book, but, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a, you know, for me I go back and forth between Paris and Berkeley. Right. My last book was on Paris and Paris cafes called Café French, now uh, I'm focused back in Berkeley and now can't go back to Paris. I mean, I'm not allowed to go to Paris. No right. one's allowed to go no to Paris. Al- Even the people that live in Paris are not allowed to go to Paris. Yeah. If they're stuck here in the United States, it's very hard to get back. Now so the- it's kind of ironic that I'm actually now focused on those early years. You know, I guess at this stage in life, one goes back and starts to think about the past. And certainly garlic is a big part of my past, and I... I appreciate your uh, willingness and, and pleasure in bringing back garlic into my life because it's really something we have shared for many, many years. Absolutely, we have shared. And I love that you're doing this book. Now, the Paris book is um, it's full of your drawings. Uh, you called them, uh, what when you started at the Berkeley, what was the Berkeley paper when you started doing the Berkeley food doodles? Insider. I started Berkeley illustrating Insider. my own articles yeah, in the Berkeley Insider called Food Doodles. Mm-hmm. And then there was a book of my cartoons called Food Doodles. I published that in 2011. And then last year was the uh, Café French book, which is really my life as a flaneur in Paris, hanging out in Parisian cafes, drawing and being a kind of, you know, uh, bohemian flaneur, the the 19th century character that would wander around uh, Paris and observe what was going on in Paris. And so that's the last book. And now I'm, uh, I'm flannering through my past, essentially. Now, is and the new book going to be um, as, as uh, graphic? Um, no. As, okay, it's going to be narrative. It's narrative with photographs with, and oh, memorabilia. Excellent. So there'll be old, early menus from... You know, the, the, it basically it focuses on what I call the first wave of the Berkeley food, uh, you know, revolution and mm-hmm. the gourmet ghetto. That's 
basically 19, late 1960s to 1980. Mm-hmm. So that's the focus, and I call it the first wave. Uh, and those are all the iconic places, most of which are gone now. Many, but several are still there. You know, Pete's and the Cheese Board and Chez Panisse. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Poulet was sort of the last entrant into the ghetto in 1979. So that's where I'm stopping. I'll have a ch- I'll have a section on what happened after, and I'll have a section on the future. And of course, that future now is much more complicated. We don't know post COVID what's going to be happening. Yeah, we have. I no mean, idea. maybe we're all going to be just closing down our streets. And, and sitting outside like in cafes, like in Parisian cafes. That which, would not you know, be a bad outcome, would it? <laughs> well, it would be, a, a, you know, it would be a sad but, but, but happy uh, resolution to the problem. But Yeah, I don't know for, if you know, you're probably not aware, but up here in Sonoma County for the next, I believe it's three months, the uh, central downtown thoroughfare, 4th Avenue, 4th Street, is closing for, I think it's from the... Uh, B Street, where the big Santa Rosa Mall is, up to E Street. So that's the main shopping area and main restaurant area of downtown Santa Rosa. They're closing it so that restaurants have the street to serve. For a and minute, I mean, that just began. For an extended period of time or for just a certain three, three months. Three months is what I hear. Okay. And, well, you know, that's yeah. happening everywhere. I mean, uh-huh. they're going to be doing that, I think, uh, in parts of North Berkeley, too, so that the restaurants that are all closed in the, in the so-called gourmet ghetto, which is a whole other story, you know, the whole upcry, yes. uh, outcry about that word being, you know, sexist and, or uh, racist and this, that, and the other thing. Anyway, another whole other story. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, we don't know the future. We don't know the future. No, we don't. Um, yeah. One more thing before we go, because we're almost out of time. When it comes yeah. to garlic today, um, do you focus on specific varieties for specific foods? Do you still eat a lot of garlic? Talk to me about you and yeah. garlic in your kitchen today. Well, the, when COVID hit, the first thing I did was bring back a beverage that I created uh, in my newsletter back in the, uh, I guess in the 80s, maybe in the 80s, called The Bloody Miracle. The Bloody Miracle. I was just reading that recipe earlier today. And, you know, my book, there was a time when you were going to do a revised edition of The Book of Garlic, and I did some work for you. And I found my note today on, um, it's like a butterfly. There's so many little um, sticky notes on it. Um, And at Bloody Miracle, I said, definitely keep add more garlic. <laughs> <laughs> so the Bloody Miracle is a garlicky version of the Bloody Mary. And the reason I call it a Bloody Miracle is because when you really gutsy up a great Bloody Mary with, you know, celery and, and olives and, um, you know, lots of garlic and lemon juice, it, it is a health drink. It is a health food drink. And, you know, the conceit of, of you know, an ounce of vodka being good for you um, you know, based on what I read once in a Harvard Medical Review, that one ounce of alcohol a day is good for your heart, and you know, too much alcohol is bad for your heart. But anyway, it's a bloody miracle. And I started, and I thought, well, you know, in in honor of COVID, I would reintroduce a daily bloody miracle into my life, and I I pretty much have kept it up. I pretty much have kept it up. 
Oh, you've just inspired me again. <laughs> I think but, I need... But in terms of garlic, you know, I'm, I'm an old school, um, you know, very basic kind of uh, cook, you know. I go into the market and I pick up a head of garlic. And I don't really care where it, you know, I don't really care where it came from. Mm -hmm. I mean, if it's organic, great. But we all know that originally organic, you know, was not a very good sign of both growing um, and 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 um, visually organic products didn't look so good in the beginning. I mean, even in Alice Waters' recent memoir, she talks about how bad organic food yeah, was at the time. Definitely. So we don't. So for me, it's no. You know, it's not the only qualification that I look for. I look for a head of garlic that feels heavy in my hand. Yes. For the size, I want it to feel heavy because that means it's full of juice. Mm -hmm. It hasn't been sitting around forever and dried out. And you can tell from the weight whether it's going to be fresh and juicy. And that's more important to me than any subtle characteristics of the flavor in terms of hotness. Or you know, um, um, other qualities that yeah. people attribute to garlic. I right. remember in the old days when we would have garlic tastings, and we would you know get some of Chester's garlic and other garlics, and we would, and we would have a you know a, a serious like a wine tasting where we would take notes and comment. And to me, that's all nonsense now. The the key is to have fresh, 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 fresh garlic. And uh, use it um, in in you know in all of your favorite things in favorite ways. I completely I, I agree with you. Garlic. You need I eat a that... lot of garlic. Yes, you need. Do. I love it. I love the flavor. And I on love that note, flavor. on that note, we are out of time. Here on Mouthful Smart Talk about food, wine, and farming, John Harris, L. John Harris. Thank you so much, <laughs> and I will talk to you again soon. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, Michelle. You bet. Have a great week. You too. Take care, everyone. Wine's a cash crop growing strong.